This morning we're going to be in Isaiah again, chapter 44, verses 6 through 23. Last week, Trey taught us that we are God's witnesses to a watching world. And even though Israel's present reality was one of exile, God still promised deliverance to his people. And we have this beautiful language in the first five verses of chapter 44 of how God is going to do a new thing among his people and that he will pour out his spirit upon his people. And in today's passage, we focus on the theme of idolatry, which we have referenced a lot throughout our study of this section of Isaiah. And I've said many times before that when we think of idolatry, our minds typically go to the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20, where it says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of your fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. If you grew up in a household or in a church where the Bible was regularly taught, you have heard about the second commandment, perhaps hundreds of times. But I'll confess to you that for most of my life, the focus was only on verse 2, you shall have no other gods before me, and then skipping over the rest. And there's great danger in skipping over what God actually says to Moses in verses 4 to 6. Because if we only think of idolatry as some sort of carved image that we have in our house, then we've really missed the heart of what God is teaching his people about idolatry. And as we read the Old Testament, throughout the entire Old Testament, it is almost always the case that Israel is worshiping other deities alongside of Yahweh. So when Israel is guilty of idolatry, it's normally not that they completely abandon Yahweh, it's that they put other gods on the same level as Yahweh. And as we work our way through the text today, we're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive into this subject of idolatry. So let's begin in verse 6 of chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god 
or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, over the half he eats meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied. Also, he warns himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it, and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me. For I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains. O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. As we work our way through this text today, we are reminded of three important truths that not only were true in ancient Israel, but are true for us today. Number one, we believe in one God. But number two, we are prone to worship many gods. And number three, in spite of that, God remains faithful in spite of our idolatry. So number one, we believe in one God. Number two, we are prone to worship many gods. And number three, God remains faithful in spite of our idolatry. Number one, we believe in one God. What set Israel apart from all of the surrounding nations around them was the belief in Yahweh 
as the only God. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they were different from Israel. They didn't mind that Israel worshipped Yahweh, but they didn't think that Yahweh was the only God. Many of the ancient cultures surrounding Israel were what we call pantheists. This means that they believed that God was a part of the universe. In other words, God is the sun. God is the moon. He is the stars. He is the rain. He is the lightning and the thunder. Israel's surrounding neighbors did not believe that Yahweh was transcendent. Rather, they only believed he was imminent. And God, throughout Isaiah, tells the people, as he does here in verse 6, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now stop for a moment and consider the magnitude of what God is telling us here. As human beings, we have no personal recollection of anything before our lives began. We can read history books, we can listen to stories from family members or friends that tell us what life was like before we existed, but none of us remember the day we were born. God is not saying here that he is first God amongst many other gods. He is saying that he existed before anything else in all of creation and that he existed infinitely before any other part of creation. No other God can claim this. Baal, Dagon, Moloch, Chemosh, all of the gods that we read about in the Old Testament that were in constant rivalry with Yahweh for the people's hearts, all of these gods were invented by these other Canaanite nations. And to my knowledge, none of these gods are worshipped today anymore, except one. And his name is Yahweh. He is the God that existed before time began, and he will exist once all of us die. He will be around for all of eternity. Monotheism is not simply the belief in one God amongst many, monotheism is the belief that there is only one God, period. This is what Christians believe. This is what Israelites were supposed to believe. That God is the only true, infinite creator of the universe. So the question is posed here. Who is like Yahweh? If anyone in this passage could step up and defend themselves to this question, now would be the time. Of course, God knows the answer to this. No one can meet the challenge to this question. It is only Yahweh who can tell what will happen in the future and can already reminisce about things that he has done in the past. This is why God can tell Israel time and time again in this prophecy, that they do not need to fear the future. This is why we do not need to fear the future. God has been faithful the entire time. Everything that he said that would happen to Israel came to fruition. And everything that we endure in this life 
has been known by God before the foundation of the world. Now, we might be shocked at receiving startling nudes, but we must remember that the God we serve is never shocked. He knows everything that happens. This is why it's so important that we as a church stay in the word every day. As we read the same stories over and over again, the reality of God's faithfulness to his people is cemented in our hearts and in our minds. This morning I had the privilege to go in with Ashley to help in the three-year-old class. And the story that I taught the three-year-olds was the story of Elisha going to stay at the Shunammite woman's house. And they build that room for him on top of the roof. And they provide a bed, a chair, a lamp, and a table. And I've known that story my whole life. I've been taught it since I was three years old. The faithfulness of the Shunammite woman to love her neighbor like Elisha. So all of these stories that we read about over and over and over again, the reason we repeat them is so that we will be reminded of God's faithfulness to his people. That we will be reminded of how, time and time again, God's people are cared for. God's people are provided for. The Old Testament is our reminder that God is faithful to Israel. And therefore, he will be faithful to his church today. And God answers his own question in verse 8 when he says, Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, he says. I know not any. Brothers and sisters, we believe in one God, the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And he has been faithful to his people throughout history, and he will continue to be faithful to his people until he sends his son to collect his bride. But unfortunately, in spite of this reality, all of us in this room today, we are prone to worship many gods. Notice how I put gods there, not capitalized. These are false gods that we worship. The most famous example that we have in the Bible, you know well, is the story of the golden calf. In Exodus chapter 32, this is what it says. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings that are in the ears of your wives and your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up, out of the land of Egypt. Biblical scholar G.K. Beale, in commenting on this text, says this, Why did Israel create at Sinai a calf 
idol instead of an image of some other animal. Have you thought about that before? What is the significance of the calf here? He says the likely reason is that a calf or bull was among the most important of the Egyptian animal images that represented Egypt's gods. And the Israelites, of course, had worshipped Egyptian gods before coming out of Egypt. So what's the significance of this? Israel's worship of the golden calf was not only false worship, but a longing to return to Egypt. And Egypt, in the biblical narrative, represents bondage. It represents slavery. Are you picking up on the significance here? Idolatry in any form is our attempt to leave the freedom that we have in Christ and return to bondage. Return to spiritual slavery, which characterized our life prior to faith in Christ. And Isaiah points out in verses 9 through 20 of chapter 44, the failure and the futility of idolatry. He particularly points out the foolishness of those who are responsible for crafting these idols. And he references two types of people. The stonecutter, or the ironsmith, and then the woodcutter in this passage. And he points out how foolish they are, and he says that they are nothing. He points out that the ironsmith who fashions out the idol is not all-powerful. He points out that they get hungry, they get thirsty, they get tired. The carpenter who cuts down the tree and fashions the wood is ultimately making wooden idols from things that are burned in a fire and used for the cooking of food. The illustration or the point being made is that first the wood is used in a fire, then it's used to cook food, and then with the leftover it's used to fashion an idol. It's the least important thing that the carpenter does in this passage. First he builds a fire, then he provides food, then with whatever's left over, he just whips up this little false god. And all of this idol work we're supposed to see is the result of human effort. It's all being done by human hands. How can God's people trust in human gods to deliver them from exile? How can Israel bow down and worship something that was constructed by an ironsmith who hungers and thirsts and gets tired? How can they pray to it and say, deliver me for you are my God? How could Israel so soon after being freed from Egyptian slavery give up on Moses and construct their own golden calf to worship. It seems far-fetched for us to think that this is possible, but that's only if we understand the second commandment as some sort of graven image, because none of us have statues that we worship in our house. So when we think of idols, we have to shift our thinking away from small wooden or iron statues into a whole nother realm of thinking about idolatry. 
Idols are anything that we worship that take the place of the Creator. Anything created that usurps or takes the place of the Creator. In the New Cities Catechism, which we do all the time with our kids, idolatry, it says, is trusting in created things rather than the Creator. That is the answer to, I believe, the 16th question on what is idolatry. Idolatry is trusting in the created things rather than the Creator. And it seems far-fetched when we read this passage here to think that Israel could be so blind and so foolish until we begin to think about our own idols that also don't provide contentment and satisfaction, even though they deceive us into thinking that they do. What are some of the idols that we wrestle with as Americans? Money, we know, doesn't buy happiness. There will always be someone who has more money, and the longing of our hearts are not designed by God to ultimately find contentment and fulfillment in money. The activities that we place our children and our grandchildren in, while they provide wonderful lessons like teamwork and perseverance and hard work, are not designed to provide an identity that can last over the long haul. Our possessions might appear to bring satisfaction and comfort, but eventually they flame out. We want a new car, a new house, a new iPhone, a new outfit, because it's that feeling of satisfaction that we get from it. But it can't fix the deeper problems of our hearts. The relationships that we have with our spouse, with our parents, with a sibling, with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. They cannot cure the relational void that we have in our hearts because you will disappoint them and they will disappoint you and it's in those moments we realize how fragile even human relationships can be. The dangerous reality of all of the idols that we wrestle with and struggle with are that they're all good things that God gave us to enjoy. But because we're sinners, rather than simply enjoy them, we worship them. And it's because of sin. And when idols are worshipped, the consequences are always severe. Did you know that multiple research studies have shown that people that come from high-income nations are more likely to experience depression than people from low-income nations. One professor at, the, at Arizona State University reported that American teenagers from upper-middle-class families are more likely to have higher rates of depression, anxiety, and substance abuse than any other socioeconomic group of young people. Money is a terrible god. It does not bring fulfillment and satisfaction. Many of you remember a couple years ago when Tom Brady retired from the Bucks, the seven-time NFL Super Bowl, uh, seven-time Super Bowl champ, three-time NFL MVP. There was an article written in the Atlantic shortly after he retired, entitled 
the quiet desperation of Tom Brady. And the whole article was discussing what would Tom Brady do without football in his life. His entire identity as a human being was constructed around his ability to perform as a football player. Your professional career, whatever it is, is a terrible God. Because it will come to an end. You know, it's scary for me to think about, as a 38-year-old, what retirement looks like. I'm horrified. I have zero desire to retire. And you know why that is? Because men identify, especially American men, men identify more with what they do oftentimes than who they are. That's why it's so hard, or for me personally, to think about what will I do one day when I can't do this, when I can't get up and go to work and preach and visit people and do the things that God has called me to do. That's an example of a career teetering on the edge of an idol. And it's not just a guilty thing for pastors. It's for any of us. God has created us to enjoy him and worship him forever and not find our identity based on what we do for a living. Now the question is, how do we, as human beings, take these God-given gifts that he has given us, like money, like possessions, like a career, like family, how do we take them and distort them into being things that we worship rather than simply enjoy? I think Isaiah gives us the answer here in verse 18. He says, They know not, nor do they discern, or he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. This text absolutely connects us to Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1, when Paul says this, Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, Paul says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. What is Paul saying here? What is Isaiah saying here? We could have done differently, but we didn't. Now this is the tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity. God did in fact give us up, Romans 1 tells us and Isaiah tells us here, to false idols, but we did it of our own choosing. Here's what R.C. Sproul says about it. In the garden, we see the introduction of the biblical concept of freedom. Of all the trees in the garden, you may freely eat, except this one over here. You may not eat of that. If you do, you die. What God gave human beings in creation was the ability to make choices. But ability was not unlimited. It was limited. The truth is that God is free and his creatures are free. But God is more free than his creatures are. 
Free will does not mean autonomy. Nor does it mean that as a creature, you have the ability to incline yourself either to the good or to the bad with equal power. God says that by nature, in your sin, you are a slave. You still have a will. You still have the ability to make choices, but your choices are wicked. You are morally incapable in and of yourself until, here's the good news, you are enabled by God the Holy Spirit. To choose the holy things of God. God, when we worship idols, does not give us up to something that we don't want. We freely choose idolatry because our hearts are bent away from God. But we also freely choose God when we come to faith in Christ... But we only do so because the Spirit has regenerated our heart. And he has taken a heart that is bent on sin and worshiping false gods and has turned it in his grace towards God. So we're all guilty of idolatry. But by God's grace, through his Spirit, all of those that are in Christ, have had hearts that have been changed from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Now, number three, in spite of this idolatry, the take-home for us is that God remains faithful to us. In spite of Israel's constant worshiping, of other gods throughout the Old Testament. He was always faithful to the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, and on and on. They were his people. And they were his people not based on the condition of their obedience, but on his own faithfulness to them. Don't miss this. God's faithfulness and love to Israel was not based on the condition of their obedience. It was based on God's faithfulness and his choosing of Israel. Look at verse 21. God tells them, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. You will not be forgotten by me. Israel's failure to remain faithful to God does not negate his faithfulness to them. He is God. They are not. He is the one who Isaiah reminds us blotted out their transgression like a cloud and their sins like mist. Return to me, the text says, for I have redeemed you. It does not say Return to me and I will redeem you. It says return to me because I have redeemed you. Christians present in the room, your salvation is ultimately not based on your faithfulness to God. It's based on the faithfulness of the God that we worship. We as Baptists believe this strongly. We believe in what is known as the perseverance of the saints. That all that are in Christ will be preserved and will persevere until the end. What is the reason for the perseverance? 
It certainly can't be our faithfulness because we still fall short. We sin. But the God that we worship is faithful. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. So Christian, just know that when you examine your heart, you will find idols. Confess them to the Lord. Ask him to forgive you of your idolatry. And God's word teaches us that every time we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Idolatry is not a one-and-done thing. Idolatry is a daily battle of casting down the created things that we have placed above God. But the good news of the God that we serve is that he is faithful and that he forgives his children. So we repent. We confess our sin, not just on Sunday, not just when we became a Christian, but every single day. We confess our sin. We turn from our sin. And the process of sanctification by the Holy Spirit happens over time. And over time, those idols that we used to worship a lot, by God's grace, we worship less and less and less and less. And that doesn't happen because of anything in us. It happens because of the work of the Spirit sanctifying us more into the image of Christ. So, Christian, do not be discouraged. We all have idols. Ask God to search your heart, show you your idols, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, cast them down before God. Non-Christian, you need to leave here today knowing that God is not unfaithful to you by giving you up to your idols. It is the natural bent of your heart to worship false gods. That's what's in you. It is the sin nature that every person that's ever been created has within them. But the good news of the gospel is what Isaiah reminds us of in this passage. Your transgressions can be blotted out like a cloud. And your sins, like a mist, how? How is this possible? By placing your faith in Christ's atoning death on the cross for you. Believe that he died in your place for your sin. Turn from your sin and believe in Christ alone for salvation. And if you do that, you can echo the words of what Isaiah says here in verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. In the same way that God redeemed Israel, he can redeem you through his grace and his mercy that he freely gives to anyone who will receive it. The sending of Jesus is the demonstration of God's love for all of humanity. If you have a problem with idolatry today and you're not in Christ, instead of bowing down to whatever false statue exists in your life, bow down at the foot of the cross. Look to Jesus, the only one who can destroy the idols of your heart and restore you to right relationship with God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are reminded in this passage that just like Israel, we too are prone to worship false gods. They might not come in the form of statues, but they come in the form of possessions and money and activities and relationships. And God, while we know you have given us those things to be enjoyed, forgive us when we worship them rather than enjoy them. You are the one true God. You are the only one who's, worship, who's, who's worthy of our worship. Thank you for this reminder today from your word. I pray now that as we respond by singing and reflecting on the preaching of the word, that your word would take root in our hearts and that it would produce fruit according to your purpose. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.